lost the weight upon my shoulder. Now it's easier to walk. I can see the road before me. I am not afraid to fall. Welcome back to the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. We're happy to have you here and hope you all have a great Thanksgiving um, with your family and loved ones. Anyway, we're happy to have you here today. I am by myself today. Lindsay is with some sick kids, so we wish them all a speedy recovery. And um, we're excited to, Lindsay and I have talked a lot about how much this episode that um, we're going to share with you today, how it affected us and just how much we thought about it and how we were inspired by it. So if you listen to our gratitude episode, we mentioned um, Jorge. So we interviewed a guy named Jorge Nunez and Lindsay actually reached out to him. She had seen him on Instagram and had done a collaboration uh, with another Instagram page and just said, Hey, your story seems really inspiring. We would love to have you on a podcast if you'd like to. And so he um, accepted our invite and it was a really cool experience. Um, I feel like I, every once in a while I'm like, wow, this is such a cool thing that I get to do um, every week is to just interview amazing people who are so inspiring and how they can see beauty in their life, even in the hard times, through the hard times, after the hard times, they can still see beauty and have gratitude. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Jorge. So we, he was in a gang um, growing up and kind of in and out of juvenile detention and jail. And one of the things that kind of saved him was poetry. And it was just such an interesting conversation. And we probably need to apologize, Jorge. Lindsay and I, I mean, we asked him so many questions about gangs and you know, I, we didn't want to take away from the story of where he's at today as well as what poetry did for him. Um, so we wanted to, I want to talk a little bit more about the poetry part right now, but I do feel like the questions we asked are important to his story to help us understand where he was coming from, what kind of environment um, he was living in his culture and everything that was going on in his life. And um, when we get to the part where the poetry enters his life. It's just such a cool, amazing thing. And one thing that was so prominent in the story was just amazing people that helped him along the way. And it, I think it's a good testament to us that like we can change someone's life just by believing in them or supporting them or giving them a chance, an opportunity or a platform, whatever it is. Um, I think sometimes we think we're just so small and insignificant and I think the story showed me that just believing in someone, just giving somebody a chance, like you can really change someone's life. And it kept, it kept happening for Jorge. I feel like he met, you know, three to four amazing people that just were part of his story that helped guide him along the way, believed in him, gave him a chance, um, saw something in him that maybe he wouldn't have seen, you know, with his talent, with um, poetry and, and just the amazing person he was inside. I think he, um, gave a lot of credit to other people, but he, there's a lot of credit, you know, to him for fighting through and, um, getting to where he is today. So I really think you'll be really inspired by the story. I think you will really love to hear from Jorge. He's just a really nice, humble person that really just wants to help people. And so we're so happy to share his story with you. Um, so what the, one of the things he's involved with is called the street poets Inc and it's a nonprofit organization 
And their title says, Harnessing the Healing Power of Poetry and Music to Build Community and Inspire Our Next Generation to Dream a New World into Being for Us All. And they're located in Los Angeles, California. Um, But if you want to follow them on Instagram, it's Street Poets, Inc. And if you want to follow Jorge, we mentioned some of this at the end, but I just wanted to make sure um, we we focused on this poetry nonprofit and he right now teaches some classes to jail, like to different jails and prisons um, through um, like Zoom or whatever conferencing to be able to help kids and adults and whoever in prison that maybe can be inspired and enlightened and um, help them along their way. So it's just a really cool story. So I hope that you'll go and just kind of look on there and see what they're all about. It's just a really cool, um, inspiring program. And for Jorge, you can follow him at sr.jnunes. And he's on Instagram and he's just trying to get started on Instagram. So it'd be great if you guys could go follow him and support him as he's trying to get his page up and going to just start helping others as well. So anyway, enough of me. Um, I'm just so excited for you to hear Jorge and his story and just poetry, you know, art. I just think art and writing, um, so many things can inspire us. And I think it's just so cool how this story kind of all comes together. So yeah, so please join us in listening to Jorge. Thanks so much. All right. So welcome to the Beautiful Shifts podcast today. Today we have with us Jorge Nunez. Hey, Jorge. Hey, how are you guys doing? <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah, we're so excited that um, Jorge's here. I think you're going to you know, love his story. It's very inspiring and just kind of different different story than we've had before. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was cool. So I came upon Jorge's story on Instagram. He shared his story on a, um, a page called unlikely collaborators. Is is that right? That's what they're called. Yes, that's right. Yeah. If anyone wants to look it up, they have really awesome, inspiring stories of all kinds of people. And so I just read it and just loved it. Like I was really moved reading it and you read some of your poetry, like as I was swiping over, looking at your photos and I just was like, I'm just going to comment and let him know how amazing I think he is. And also let him know if he happened to want to be on our podcast. We'd love to have him. And I was so excited when I got your message. Yeah, back. she was like, I just found this guy and he seems yeah, amazing. I messaged until I'm like, he messaged me back. <laughs> so we're so excited. Uh-huh. So thanks for responding. And and then it worked out. We were able to fit him in pretty quickly. So anyway, we're super excited to dive in. So I'm going to read his bio and you guys can hear what a amazing background he has. And yeah. then we'll hop into a story. So Okay, Jorge Nunez immigrated with his family to the United States from Mexico at the age of two and was raised on the streets of Los Angeles. He fell into the gang life at a young age and was on the fast track to nowhere when he wrote his first poem while serving in an L.A. County probation camp for boys. Poetry and Street Poets, the nonprofit organization that introduced him to the writing practice, became the lifeline that would see him through four years of state prison, followed by deportation to to a country he barely knew. While incarcerated, Jorge was named the Poet Laureate of California Men's Colony, where he did the majority of his time. One of the six original members of Street Poets' first poetry performance group as a youth in the late 90s, Jorge now serves as a guest poet and teaching artist in the organization's virtual workshops from his home in Tijuana, as well as team teaching in the very same prison where he served a sentence. He is a proud father of four with an AA degree in Metatronic Engineering from you, uh, can you say the university's name? Yeah, it's Mecha- Mechatronics Engineering from okay. Universidad Tecnológica de Tijuana. 
perfect. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And it says you have a passion for writing and a deep hunger for life, which I love. And you're a father of four. We each have four kids. Yes. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How old I, are your I, kids? I, um, well, my oldest son is 26 and, and then my daughter 24. And then I have a daughter who is um, 14 and one who is six. Oh, oh, fun. Yeah. You're kind of like me. I have a span of two, like 22, 19, 15, and then 10. Yeah. yeah and I have a, I have a stepson who is eight as well. Oh, fun. Oh, fun. Yeah. So yeah. you're busy. Lots of- yeah. That is busy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, awesome. All right. Well, um, yeah, maybe you could tell us. Oh, so we know now about your family. Is there anything else that you'd like to share um, other than what was in your bio to help us get to know you a little bit better? Well, you know, um, I'm just normal, normal, normal person. And like, I'm just, I'm, I'm a try to be humble. Um, I lead, I lead these, um, these workshops on a weekly basis every Tuesday. And, and it kind of puts me in a, in a position where I have to be like a kind of like a role model, like give an example, but I, I kind of like want people to know that I'm just, I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. And I just, I'm just very humble and I'm, I'm, grateful that you guys reached out to me. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And we're honored. You said yes. So yeah, yeah, that was awesome. Um, maybe we could take you back, take us back to, I, obviously you were super small when you moved to the U S so you were two. Um, what, what was some of the stories about that? Like how long were you in the U S did you grow up here? Or I think you said LA, like a little bit about that, your family life and background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was, I was two years old when, when my parents immigrated to the U S and, you know, I grew up not knowing I was not American, you know, so I, I went to school, um, I went to elementary school, junior high and high school, and it was, um, it, it was a very nice experience. I, I mean, I, I had like a normal childhood um, besides the gang stuff and, you know, the, the drugs and all that stuff, you put that aside and it was just like a normal American kid just like growing up. So that's, 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 that's what it was like for me. And so, um, up until, like you said, it was a good childhood. Um, I'm, I mean, just assuming like, yeah, that probably came kind of the rougher side with the gangs and stuff came as kind of, you re- went into adolescence. Was that the situation? Yes. Well, I, I say I had a good childhood because, um, what I'm trying to say is I had like a, I, I just grew up like a normal kid. I grew up, you know, we grew up in poverty, um, and really rough neighborhoods and, um, the options that I saw for myself back then were not very, not, 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 we didn't have many options growing up, especially, you know, not having the proper guidance from my parents and stuff like that. So I, at the age of 12, I I joined a gang, you know, and, and it was, it was like an accomplishment for me. And it's an accomplishment for a lot of kids growing up around those neighborhoods, um, to be able to be accepted in the, in the neighborhood gang or in the local gang. It's, it's like, um, it's like, um, a turning point, you know, it's like, a forgot, I'm trying to phrase it correctly. It's like, um, you're, it's like you're coming to age, right. And you're mm-hmm. like, Oh, you're now a member of the gang. So there you go. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Does it feel as a gang, like a sense of family and community, like you have these people, that you're there for you and you're there for them, even though like as an outside person, you're like, Oh, a gang, like scary. But like, was it for you more of a sense of like, okay, I have people and belonging. Yeah. Yeah. It does give you a sense of belonging and and it's a bit confusing 
or at least it was for me, um, because it did give me that sense of belonging, the sense of family. Uh, I felt love and I felt cared for. But at the same time, there's there's a lot of conflict inside gangs. You know, there's like fights and there's there's just like brutal um, treatment um, to each other, you know, when people don't get along. And it's like putting together a bunch of kids from dysfunctional families and they're, they're like trying to hang 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 with each other and hang with you know like be there for each other but at the same time we we really don't know how yeah. you know we've never we've never um saw saw it you know working in our family so there's a lot of violence and a lot of um aggression within the gang so that that was kind of confusing to me it caught me off guard i felt like i was um being welcomed to a family but then at the same time I felt like, wow, this isn't this is supposed to happen. Why is this happening? And I, I didn't understand the dynamics of it until, you know, years later. Yeah. Yeah, looking back. Yeah. So how does like how did you get involved with this gang? Or is there like an initiation or you have to be invited? Like what is the process to be in that there, gang? There is an in- initiation. Usually usually these gangs, they're like already they they've been they've been in your neighborhood for years and generations, right? So they see you growing up as a kid, you know, the older guys, they see you when you were a little kid and they see you walking to school, they see you playing, you know, on the street or whatever. And um, as you get older, you know, you're, you or your friends or someone has a brother or a cousin or a father who is, or an uncle who's already involved in the game. So like, you kind of like, just like kind of get, um, you gravitate, you know, to, to, to being around them. And then eventually you're invited to join the gang, you know, and um, you're initiated in the gang. You you actually get like, um, I guess, um, beat up by like four or five people um, for a minute or so or maybe a couple of minutes. And that's the initiation. There's there's different initiations, you know, depending on, on where you live or what gang it is. But usually it's that's what it is. Wow. Wow. And you said you were... 12 when you got involved yeah I was 12 yes wow that's so young like and I know when you're 12 you feel old (laughs) you know you think I mean I think back but you know we're all parents now we know we look at our 12 year olds and it just yeah they seem so yeah young innocent yeah yeah yeah. Uh, I was a couple questions like how big are these gangs like how many you know and was it like a small group or like you're saying there may have been other older family members a part of it like yeah. What, what's, is the size? And then also, did you kind of, did you know kind of what they, what they were doing and what you're getting yourself into, or were you just kind of like, but like blindsight, you know, were, were you surprised at what you saw once you were actually in that world? Yeah, I, I was surprised on a few things, but, but in general, I kind of knew what I was getting into because I, I grew up around them like mm-hmm. the whole time, but I did, I was, um, I was blindsided or I was caught off guard when, um, I was offered drugs. Like I was like 12 and this older man who was a gang a member of the gang, he was like, Hey, you want, you want to get high? And, and I had this romantic idea about being in a gang where you're just being cared for and you're going to be watched over. And that's not the case, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. Well, and especially when it's coming from an older person who, 
I mean, that's hard enough coming from like a peer your own age, but that's probably, I mean, the amount of peer pressure that you probably feel as a younger member of the gang, you're trying to please them. You're trying to make sure that you can stay in the gang. Like they're older and wiser. So why wouldn't you, you know, why wouldn't you trust them? That's just, that's a lot. Like, yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And then how many members would you say? Oh, right. Yeah. We're in your gang. Well, the most of, most of the gangs are very big. They're like or I don't know if you would consider big, but they're 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 more than a hundred, two hundred, maybe three hundred oh. members. There's some gangs that have like thousands of members. Oh, okay. But the thing mm-hmm. is that you don't see them congregating like all at the same time because more than half of them are probably going to be in jail or mm-hmm. somewhere, and then whoever is left outside, you know, if you can managed to put them together it would not look that big but there's and then we have to talk about you know like the the older generations that are probably not going to go to a meeting that probably have their families or probably have a job or you know they're trying to stay away and not get in trouble so there's there's a lot of members um in, in the gang as a gang like what is your like a purpose or what is your i mean besides this kind of community and just the word gang itself, like a group of people. I mean, are you, is it like, like is drugs like a huge part, like, or violence or is it just, um, community? I thought had the same question. I mean, it's probably, I know it's a naive question, right? I mean, we are in Salt Lake city, Utah. If you didn't know, (laughs) I know that there probably are gangs in parts of Utah, but obviously it's a lot different in somewhere like California, like the bigger cities, and we've just, I don't think either of us have lived in communities mm-hmm. that have had kings. So this is like a whole new language to us. So you're yeah. educating us. So right. thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I get, I had the exact same question Chantel had. So the, the purpose of a gang, it, it's really, it's really pointless. There is no, there is no end goal. There is no, there, there is nothing. There, there is not a goal where they try there that are trying to reach. I think, um, gang was formed maybe through a group of friends who hung out with each other and said, Hey, let's become a gang or whatever. Let's call ourselves this. And then it eventually evolved into getting into trouble, doing drugs and maybe um, committing crimes. Um, It's not, it's not a goal to, for a gang to commit crimes or to do drugs. It's not specified anywhere. It's just kind of, kind of, moves in in the direction of where the people are taking it so you know if there's a guy who wants to get high and he's getting drugs and he wants to share them or provide them to other members then that's what he'll do and then there's you know there can be like another group of people within the same gang that are you know committing crimes and you know they're like hey we're gonna go do this you wanna you wanna come with us stuff like that so there's really no angle there's also i mean there's also um sense of community right there's also um hey let's get together let's have a party let's um let's have a cookout you know stuff like that that doesn't involve crime or drugs or anything like that and and the people will bring their kids and their family and it'll be a peaceful event um so it's not always um like negative right right yeah so it sounds like it's more a place to belong in a community but sometimes things happen within the group. And of course, if you're in a gang and yeah, that maybe you're because you're associating with those people. And if certain members get into drugs or get into crime, you might just get pulled in, not really intentionally or anything. It just kind of happens. 
Yeah. And is, yes, is this exactly. purpose is also like protection? Like, is there an element of that where you're there to protect each other? Or is that, is that also kind of a byproduct? Well, it, it is a byproduct. It's not, there, there is a purpose of unity and, or not a purpose, but there's a sense of, of unity and protection. Um, but you know, if you're not, if you're not like part of a gang, there's no need for you to need protection. And mm. then you become part of a gang and now you need to be protected because other yeah, people. Yeah, it's like a cycle. That's it. true. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. A good so point. it's like, yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of ironic in a way. Yeah. Right. Right. So, is there t- typically like some leaders, like the ones that kind of are in charge? There, there's not really leaders in a gang. There's probably someone who will put together a meeting, or you know, and, and call a meeting to talk about whatever is going on. But there's, there's not really like a leader. Um, it, it it it's hard to say there's a leader in the gang because you know one day you know so and so will be the leader and then like the next day he'll get arrested and he'll go away and then somebody else or somebody will get killed and you know it, it just it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense to say there is a leader but there is there is people who are influential to you know to the rest of the members so, yeah. yeah yeah and then I was curious how hard is it to get out of one? Like if you want to be out, is that an option or is that too hard? I mean, you, you always have a choice. There's always a choice to, as a person, as an individual to kind of move away, not get in trouble, not hang out. So you always have a choice, but the actual getting out of a gang is probably, it's not, it's not likely, but you could just like get, um, you can just, get away from them, move away, try, you know, do something different. Distance, distance yourself. Yeah. yeah distance okay. yourself. Yes, exactly. Are there, are there repercussions for doing Like if you distance yourself without moving away, say, or something, would they take offense to that and like try to, you know, retaliate in some way? Or do you feel like that is a safe thing for people to do? I mean, I'm sure every gang is different, but from, from your yeah, it's um, It's kind of like, like, being in high school or, or being in university or college, like you're going to have a group of people who are going to be envious, envious of you. And they're going to, they're not going to like, like if you say, you know what, I, you know, I'm not going to hang out because, you know, I'm, I'm working, I'm going to school. I started going to college or I'm back in high school or whatever. So there, some, some, some people are just going to be like, cool. Like they're not going to, um, they're, they're not going to give it any thought. They're just going to be like, you know, he's doing his thing. That's fine. And then there are some people who are going to be angry and envious and they're going to be like, um, you know, um, being aggressive toward you or, you know, like mm-hmm. as far as words and or 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 they try to pull you back somehow um, back to doing stuff you did before. So, yeah, it's it's I think you can see that in most communities right? Um, when you're doing something different than, you know, than you did before. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So what would you say your path was from here? Like as you got into your teenage years, um, did you get into trouble? Did you want to be out of the gang? You know, what was your path from there? Yes, I did. I did get into trouble. Um, being, being in the gang is very addicting. Um, there's a lot of adrenaline. You're always on survival mode. So it was always very exciting there was always something happening, something drama, you know, some, something was happening. So it was always very exciting. So it was very addicting to kind of 
be put in, into this atmosphere. Then when you try to step away from it, um, your life kind of gets boring, right? You're like, wow, it's not exciting anymore. You know, now I'm just working or going to school or, or you know, it's, it's not that exciting. But um, I did, I did, I did step away from my gang and I did distance myself from them. And I did have, you know, a group of friends who embraced it and who were, who respected it. And then I had a group of friends who did not, that, you know, they don't like it. Interesting. I, as you were saying that, I'm like, I can totally see that, you know, as you think about your teenagers and when you're a part of something and it's exciting, like, of course you're going to want, it's, it would be really hard to step away. I could see that. And then, yeah, just going back to boring life, like when you're a part of this group, there's probably a lot going on and, um, Anyway, that makes total sense. It's so interesting to hear this. Like this is a right. conversation that anyway, very eye-opening. So um so you ended up in juvenile hall at 16 years old. Do you want to tell us a little bit or whatever you're comfortable with what led to to that point because you had stepped away from the gang. So did you end up getting pulled back in somehow or Yeah, well, I didn't step away from the gang before going to juvenile yeah. hall. Okay. I, I, um, that was part I was still of involved in the gang. Okay. I think I went to juvenile hall the first time when I was 14 and I was like oh, okay. going back and forth. So, um, um, what I got, I got involved like in, um, drugs and, you know, robberies and, um, stealing cars and stuff like that. And that's how I went to juvenile hall. Okay. Yeah. How much time did you spend there? So you're saying you kind of went in and out. Of yeah, I went in and out. So like the first time, I think I was there for like a year, and then I, I came, I came home, and um, I went back in a few more times, maybe for like a week at a time or a month at a time. You know, just as just getting through the process, the legal process, and then I was I'll be released again. And then the second time, I went in for like a year as well. Hmm. So, do you think? <clears throat> just curious of the system, the juveniles. Like, do you feel like it? Were you in a place where it was helpful for you and you did want to change? Or were you just like, I need to do my time. I just want to get out. Like, you know, kind of what was your thought process at that age? Yeah. And did you have well, like goals uh, of like. Uh, my thought process. At, yeah. The, mm-hmm. the thought process at that age is you're a teenager. N- you know, nothing can stop you. You know, no <laughs> yeah. one can control you. So I was very, very rebellious. Um, I got to say, it's not. The way, the way the gang culture evolved in the nineties and in the nineties and two thousands, it was like, it was like, you look forward to going to jail. You look forward, like it's like an accomplishment, right? It's like, mm-hmm. Oh, I got, I did some time. I came back home and it's like, looked at like as something that is good, you know, mm-hmm. for, for the people. And it, it, it it's really saddening now that I look back on it because the options that we had, growing up were very limited. Um, there were few programs, few outreach programs that will work with the youth. Um, I don't think they saw the immense impact that the community, the gang communities um, in the neighborhoods were actually having on on society. So, um, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if I answered your question. No, that's great. Yeah. I was just kind of curious if you thought it helped you or if you were even in a space you wanted to be helped. So it sounds like at that point you're like, well, write a passage. I can say I've been, you know, to jail or juvenile and yeah. just move on. Well, and kind of like you're saying, unless there's some kind of community or outreach program that feels like it's going to 
fill that space that the gang is filling. Like, why would you be interested in not getting back into it? It's kind of what I'm imagining. Like, that's probably how I would have been, you know, just like, well, of course I want to get out of here and get back to what I was doing with my friends and my, my community, you know? So that makes sense. And it's kind of sad because I do feel like there's a lot of programs that are, that are great. Like you, you say, like we've interviewed this girl that, um, helped foster kids, but like in the system, whether you're being a foster parent or you're being, what was it called? Like a certified where she, yeah, they work with the foster yeah. children. I'm trying to remember but what they were called. The system yeah. itself was the goal was to get them in a good place or get them back into their home or a home. But then she felt like it fell off from there. They didn't have anything mm-hmm. after that. So it's like you're helping them in the moment, but once they like grow out of it, if they turn into adult or if they do find a home or go back home, then what? And so yeah. it was like she created a community for after that. And it seems like some of these things, like you had nowhere else to go except for back to your gang because that yeah. was your community and your family or whatever. So it's like, yeah, you put you in there and they want you to change, but then there's no resources once you leave. Yeah. And it does seem like, I feel like there's more of that these days. Well, and even what you're involved in now, we'll get to that. But yeah. Um, another question I had is, so were you going back to high school? Like you'd phase out a ju- juvenile hall and then go back to your high school. And what was that like? Or if you were like, I was curious how school worked into all of this. Well, the la- the last official grade that I finished was sixth grade from elementary school. Oh, okay. And the rest of the schooling that I got was inside of juvenile hall, oh, okay. inside of jail. So um, I got my GD while I was in a juvenile camp. And and um, I did my junior high while I was incarcerated. As oh, well. okay. And then as far as your family, were your parents, you know, disappointed when you'd go to juvenile hall or were they expecting it? Did they know you were part of the gang? Like what and role I was wondering that yeah, too. What role did your family have? Well, my dad my dad is also involved in gangs and mm-hmm. or was also in, involved in gangs and he was a heroin addict. So he oh. wasn't around very much. And when he was around, he, he was just like, I don't know, trying to get through the day, I guess. I'm yeah. I'm not sure. He wasn't a very big um role model for for myself or my brothers and my mother she was um she she was like very very devoted like christian woman and she she would take us to church as as children before i joined the gang and i think like in a way like i I don't want to say it the wrong way because i don't want to offend offend her but i think in a way like the church was like her heroine as it was mm. like my dad had his addiction mm. and it kind of didn't allow her to be like the best parent she could be. And, and it, it, and I'm not like, I'm, I'm full, I'm like totally grateful for, for my mother because she was a single parent. She, you know, she, she survived and she helped, she pulled us with her. But I think, um, I think it, it could have been a little better. And, and it's 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 weird because I know that, that that was probably what helped her survive, right? Like clinging to the church and to her faith. Um, but it also kind of created a barrier between, you know, her being a mother and, and us being her children, I think, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I think sometimes religion, like if your kids aren't living up to it or living that way, that it's, I don't know, it's hard to they can kind of cling to that more maybe in their minds almost in hopes that their example will bring you like right prayer or their devotion. But really it's probably like so pretty unrelatable for you at that point. 
And also, but like yeah, you said, it could have been what was getting her through, you know? So it's just so hard because everyone's just doing their best to survive, you know? And, and so, yeah, I don't fault her at all, but like you said, I can see how that would be hard. Yeah. I think, I think I, I am pretty sure that's probably what helped her get through mm-hmm. and, and survive. And, and I think it was very important for her to survive in order to, you know, pull it, pull her children with her, but it doesn't, gives us it doesn't give us like the best atmosphere as far as um mother and children go or family goes because it's it's like um you know when with a drug addict it's um there's like neglect right and i think when you're so devoted to your faith it also causes a similar effect um like neglect you know to your children or or attention yeah 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 that's an interesting comparison but that makes so much sense yeah yeah and I think the peace that sometimes people feel in religion, that the peace that they can be kind of addicted to that and chase that and maybe kind of neglect some other things in their lives, not even meaning to, but yeah, like you said, it's, it's an interesting comparison for sure. So. Yeah. And, right. I, and I think her intentions were all, all well, but yeah. So um, back to your question, I'm, I, I skipped over it. No, that no. was great. Oh, yeah. That was, that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think my mom was very disappointed in us um, or in myself for for going for going to jail. I think it was really really hard for her, and um, and I don't I don't know what my dad would think. I I do have a relationship now as as adult as an adult, but um, back then I didn't know what his thoughts were on that. Yeah. I, I can't imagine what his thoughts were. Right. Yeah. So you said you had brothers. You had a couple. Were they all? Were you all in a gang? Yes, all of us eventually. I was, I, I am the oldest, and um, um, I have three brothers, and all of them are members of the gang. All right. Well, maybe now, if you want to tell us, yeah, how? I mean, the poetry came in. Well, do you, should we ask about that, or do you want to just kind of tell us what happened next? Okay. So one of these times that I went to to jail to juvenile hall, I, I was sixteen years old. And I was um, in a dorm setting. There's probably about a hundred youth that live inside of the dorm. It's like a, I guess you can, like a military dorm that you see that you see in movies. So it's similar to that. There's bunk beds, and um, and my next door neighbor, he you know who, who slept on the bunk next to mine. He said, "Hey, um, let's go to this poetry class." And and I. And and before, as as a child, I would think like poetry, like what you know, like what what you know, what are you talking about, you know? And he and he he he's like, no, let's just go, because there's very little things to do while you're in jail, right? So he's like, let's just go and we'll get out of this dorm and we hang out over there, and then um, you know, just to get out. And I was like, all right. So I went to the poetry class with him. There's this this man, you know, who walked in the dorm. This white guy, tall white guy. Um, his name's Chris Henriksen, Christopher Henriksen. And um, he was a volunteer. He's a, he's a writer. He's a volunteer. And so he, he would put these um, writing classes together. And and that's where we went. That was the first time that I went to a poetry class. And um, I was really surprised that it was about 12 youth that went to that class. And the gang stuff did not go into the classroom with us. Like they respected that that space so much like nothing there wasn't going to be any gang activity or aggressions or anything while we were in this class it was like 
fuller respect. So I was really, I was really surprised when I saw this. So I, I walk into the class and we sit in a circle and we're, you know, we're, we're having a conversation and we're talking and then we're writing and we're reading our poetry. And, and I was surprised to hear people being vulnerable, the youth being vulnerable in front of everyone else. And what was most surprising is that no one criticized them or judged them or said anything to them about their vulnerability, um, anything negative to them about their vulnerability. There was a lot of words of encouragement and and just um, thoughtful silence, you know, and I, and I believe it was this deep, thoughtful silence because a lot of us were going through similar situations, but we weren't able to speak on them because of whatever, because it was buried deep inside of us. So when I saw this space, this genuine space that allowed us to be vulnerable, allowed us to be honest and, um, and, and, and to be heard for the first time, um, I I was, you know, I was caught. I was like, I wanted to keep going. That's amazing. That gave me the chills. Me too. (laughs) I know it's, that really is amazing. Well, it just makes you realize like how powerful, well, art can be, you know, like poetry for you and how powerful just like one person can be or a space can be because all you needed was to feel safe and people were able to be vulnerable and that changed your life. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It did, it did change my life. It, it saved my life. Um, right. Yeah. 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 So after, you know, going to these classes, you know, for a year and then you think like, well, you get out of jail and then I don't have any classes anymore. I don't have any support anymore. I don't have no one to hear me or, or an outlet. And Chris, I think, realized that he I think he realized, you know, what's going to happen after these these guys get out of jail. So he um, he put together like a he would have like barbecues at his house and you know, invite youth and other artists. He's um, he's got like some connections with like Hollywood and, you know, um, actors and singers and stuff like that. So he would invite people or his friends and he'll invite us youth over and he'll take us out of our. All of our, you know, my, our neighborhood. So we go from our neighborhood to where he lives and it's like um very peaceful and very safe and very like no aggression, no violence. And, and it was very comforting. And, and, and also it was very um, weird for us because it was like, wow, like, you know, we're, we're, we're over here in the hills somewhere, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's very nice. Um, so we, we would start doing those gatherings and we have like poetry readings. And then, he created a performance group. It was like six of the youth that were inside of, of juvenile hall. And, and we would perform our poetry group. And we went, we went to like colleges and um, universities. We went to some churches, we went to um, Los Angeles theater center and like a bunch, a bunch of different places that he would um, try to get us to perform in. And, and we would, and, you know, we started performing eventually like, I just want to just put it out there like this, this healing is, is, uh, is a process. So most of us that were in that group, not all of us, but most of us, we, we fell back into the gang lifestyle. We, we fell back into crime and some of us went back to jail. And during this process, 
Chris put together a non a not you know a nonprofit organization that's called Street Poets, and it had an office and it had a place where youth can you know um, gravitate to, and and that's what, that's exactly what happened. That's you know that's hap- that happened about twenty eight years ago. That's amazing! Wow, yeah, that, what an amazing person! I know, yeah, that's seriously, really cool. yeah. So. I had so many questions like as you're talking. Um, I wonder, you know, going back to kind of your personal story, did you know right off the bat, you know, like that first time that you went in there, like, oh, I want to stay with this and I want to try writing poetry or was it kind of a gradual thing that you realized your love for it? Like, how did that it, evolve? It, it was gradual. At, at the beginning, when I first started writing poetry, it was very superficial and it was, um, you know, boasting, um, lying, um, imitating like it was it was just a space where I was being heard and not being judged and and most of us including myself would write very superficial stuff but then there was these moments where there was like breakthroughs and there was a genuine poem of pain of being scared of being hurt of um talking about you know topics that were much deeper so at the beginning, I was attracted to writing poetry because I was being heard for the first time, mm. but it gradually turned into a tool for healing um, for myself. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. It makes me think of, I think it's Brene Brown's quote about that vulnerability um, creates connection mm. and we all just need connection. So whether it's connection with ourselves and our story or connection with others, you know, I imagine hearing some of these stories, like what you said, like they were being open and they were being honest. And you're like, wait, I felt that way. And it's okay to feel that way. Or I've experienced that. And that is hard. And it's okay to be scared or, you know, all these things that can come out of it. That's just so beautiful. Yeah. Yes. As you got more into it and everything, um, like you said, you, you fell back. Like, so when you would go out of juvenile hall, were you, trying to figure out how to say this, like, were you able to still be a part of the street poets until he created the um, nonprofit or not the street poets, but the poetry group, or would you kind of just be back? Like, were you, did you still have a connection to poetry when you go out or was it only when you were in juvenile hall that you were able to participate in those groups? No, I was, I was, I was involved with the, with the poetry after getting out of jail. Okay. So you're able to have that connection. That's yeah. great. And that's so cool that he would, yeah, invite you to his home and invite special guests and give a space or take you, yeah, take you to the colleges or wherever it was that you were performing the poetry. Um, did that give you like, I'm just curious cause you're still young. And so I understand, you know, you might not think about some of these things at that point, but like, was it like, Oh, I, did it give you hope or a wish or a goal for something more than a gang? Like, mm-hmm. did it make you think I want to be out? I want to be out of this area. I want to not live here. I want to live somewhere safe. Or did it seem more overwhelming? Like this can't happen for me. This will never be me. Like what was your thought process? Yeah. I, I, I've actually given that a lot of thought, you know, growing up, um, Chris and he, he would set us up with other mentors. I had a mentor named Andy Burnt and he, I think he's like the vice president to like Google right now or something like that. Anyways. Yeah. He's a, he's a really, really cool, cool guy. I, I, I'm really grateful for him and, and Chris. It, well, he, um, they would see, they would see this potential in me that I could not see at all. Like I, I could not see it. Like they would see 
a future for me. They believed in me. They 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 saw potential, and not just me, just in all the youth that we were working with or that we're, that we're working with. I I cannot see it. I cannot see past past the street. I didn't. I didn't. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see a future at all. Like, um, and I, I just. I I don't know. I there was nothing for me that I can see. I I I like going to these meetings because of the poetry. Because I got to hang out. Because I got food. Because it was a really like cool thing to do. But but I didn't see a future for myself. Hmm. Outside. Outside. Yeah. So it was the belief that others had on you that helped you believe it. I mean, at some point you had to realize that you could have what you wanted or have, you know, get out of the gangs. Like, did you have a moment or was it just gradual when with these people believing in you that you could? Yeah, it was gradual. Um, I don't think I've ever had that moment where it was just like, like, wow, I can do this. You know, it, it just kind of moved gradually. Yeah. Well, and having a positive influence like that in your life, I mean, that was a step. Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, for some people, they might have that big aha moment, like, oh, I want to make a big change. And for other people, it's like having these positive role models in your life and this positive thing of poetry that, you know, you're able to finally express yourself and, and get out, like you said, be vulnerable with groups. I think, I mean, oftentimes it is like the little steps that I think can help obviously. And then you've, you know, incorporated it into your life. And so anyway, it's amazing. Um, so yeah, where, like, yeah, how did things go from there? Like you, you became more involved, you were traveling around, um, you ended up getting your GED. You said, yeah, where did your life go as you were kind of phasing out of teenage years and into adulthood? Okay. So at the age of 16, I had my son and I, I came, I came, I got out of jail and came home to, to like a newborn son. And I wanted, you know, to, to do good. I was, you know, trying to find jobs. I was doing jobs, like odd jobs, like construction and stuff like that. I did not have legal status, so I could not like apply to McDonald's or, or, you know, um, anywhere legally. And I was, I was embarrassed to be an illegal immigrant at this time. I was, I was, I was embarrassed to not be American. I was embarrassed that I didn't have my legal status. So I didn't want to do the jobs like selling flowers or oranges or corn cobs out on the street. Right. Um, that other, um, illegal immigrants did. And, and, and it's, um, so I tried, I tried, I tried doing that. And at the same time, I tried um, working on jobs. And at the same time, I was going to these events and these performances with street poets. And eventually, I started selling drugs again. And I would, and I was always honest with Chris. You know, I was like, "Look, man, this, I'm, I'm here. I'll, I'll come. I'll, I'll go to these meetings. I'll go to these performance groups. But I also need to make a living. Like this is what I'm doing. You know, and." That's, you know, that's what I did. Eventually, um, I got arrested again and I went, I went to prison. I went to an adult prison at the age of like 19 or something like that. For, for the drugs, for selling drugs? For armed robbery. Oh, okay. I'm Please. sure. Like, I'm thinking like, okay, you're young, you have a kid, you want to provide for the kid. You can't, you don't, you're not 
you know, you don't have legal status, so you can't, I mean, that's so hard. So you're like, yeah. what can I do to make money fastest? What can I do to provide? Yeah. What can I do to survive? Well, drugs is the easiest thing. I mean, oh, I can totally, well, we both have 15 year old sons. They're almost 16. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, what if they weren't allowed to just go apply it? You yeah, know, my son just got a job in and out. Yeah. He works in and out and it's a great job. They pay well, they treat him really well, but like he probably, I mean, I can totally see that. He was not going to want to go sell stuff on the street. I mean, he would, but that's, I can totally see how that would happen. Like it's completely, yeah. yeah understandable. Like survival. Yeah, yeah. Survival. And you're going to, and you probably can make a lot better money selling drugs and going that route. And yeah, you have a child now, so it's survival for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I don't want to like, um, I could, I could have, I could have worked those jobs that embarrassed me. Right. I could have done that. I just, as a kid, I, I was too immature to kind of make that decision to, to do those jobs. Yeah. So it was easier for me to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's great if people do that, but I can totally understand. Yeah. It's no judgment. Yeah. So, um, you ended up going back at 19 and was that, I mean, that was probably a much different experience than juvenile hall being, yeah. In yeah. In an adult prison. It, it, it was a different experience. And it's also one of those accomplishments that you feel proud of. Um, weird, weirdly, right. It's like strange. Like, how would you feel proud of that? But in the, in the, in the culture that I was growing up, it was like a stepping stone. It was like, Oh, now I'm in adult prison, you know? Mm. And, um, and it was, it was exciting as well. It was very exciting. Um, a lot of adrenaline, a lot of violence, a lot of, um, new new like new experiences and at the same time it it was scary as well um it was it was very scary um I didn't mention this before but as growing up in the streets you kind of learn to use to fight off your fear with aggression or violence so whenever you're scared you react angrily you react violently or aggressively or you react with anger to kind of mask and help you get through the fear that you're feeling so it was a lot of that as well in the adult prison yeah Yeah. that makes sense you don't want to show your fear so it comes out as yeah yeah it seemed like a protective thing for sure like fight or flight I mean you go into fight you know and and you were kind of trained to do that in the gang as well so and seeing that so how long were you in that uh in the prison for I went to prison for four years um, for for the armed robbery, and um, and d- during these four years, when you when you're, when I say when you're a kid because you're 19 years old, Still you're a child young. legally, yeah, you're, you're a an teenager, adult, child, yeah, 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 yes, for sure. So like, when you're a kid in the prison, and it's very like I want to I want to tell you guys a little bit about prison, adult prison yeah. in California, like like say. Say my, I have a, a younger brother who went to prison who was 17 years old. He was tried as an adult. He went to an adult prison and he was not allowed to smoke because he was not 18. And you think of a system, it's like a slap in the face. It's like, you're going to try me as an adult, but you're not going to allow me to smoke a cigarette because I'm not 18. It just, and that's the way it was. So they have these, these programs where if you're under 21, you have to go to school in prison because you're still considered a youth, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, so it's ironic, right? It's just crazy. Yeah, it's like you're in an adult prison, but you're not actually an adult. So they're going to make you go to school. That is interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So I, I went, they, they sent me to school. And when I was in, in class, there was this teacher that I have who I'm still in contact with, who's a very good friend of mine. Her name is um, Elizabeth Buckner. She was running the class in, in the school and, and she said, you know, like, sit up. She, she gave me an assignment. She sat me on the desk. There was a computer and I started writing poetry. Like, I didn't want to do whatever assignment she gave me. And I started writing poetry and she crept up on me. She said, what are you doing? And, and she said, let me see that. And then she said, you have to go down, you know, you have to go down um, the walkway to this other classroom and ask for Deborah Tobola. And I thought I was in trouble. So I, I, I got up and I walked down the hall and I, I went all the way down to where the other building was and asked for Deborah Tobola. Deborah Tobola is also a good friend of mine and a mentor and a teacher. And she was running the arts and corrections program in, in the, the prison. And um, in her program, there is a writing class. So she's like, you know, um, Ms. Buckner called me. She said, you know, she caught you writing a poem. And she said, can, can you read that for me? And I said, yeah. And, and I read it to her. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting. <laughs> it's okay, yeah. I'm just, I'm just going back. This has been, it's been about 20 years. Yeah. So she's like, can you read it to me? And I did. And um, she, she, she really embraced me. She, she gave me, she gave me an opportunity that no one else in the prison had, like no one had that resource um, of escaping the prison population to go into a safe place every day within the prison. So it, it was really, really, it, it, what she did, what she did it for me was really great. She offered me a job as a writing clerk at, at the arts and corrections program. And um, that's where, you know, I, I, I continued my writing within prison in the arts and corrections program with um, Deborah Tobola. Another, wow. another amazing person. That yeah, that is like change trajectory of your life. That's yeah. Amazing. And see how that would be emotional for you. Like a big, yeah, to revisit that, yeah, for yeah, sure. and like you said, to get yourself, there's really nowhere to go in prison. You're in prison, but she gave you a space to be that was safe, where you could use your talents and be creative, and that's that's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you had that job. Were you able to have that job the remainder of your time there, or yeah, where where did that lead? I was at that job for maybe about two years. Okay. And then I got transferred to another prison afterward, and um, and and then I I got deported. I I got deported to Mexico. Oh, okay. So at this point, what, what age were you? I got deported to Mexico when I was twenty three. Okay. Okay. And that to Tijuana was that where you ended up? Yes, yeah, that... Tijuana. Okay. Okay. And that's where is that? Do you have family there? Is that where your parents were from? Or... No. No. No, this this is one of those other situations where you're like, um, you're 23, you're, I mean, I know the number sounds big to adults, but you're still, you're still a kid, like 23 year olds probably still in college and probably still mm -hmm. go back, back to their mom's house when they're, mm -hmm. you know, on break. So, yeah. so I got, I got deported to Mexico. I I do have family here, but I've never met them before. I, I don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And um, Chris had some volunteers that were now, you know, by this time, Street Poets is getting um, the ball rolling. There's a lot of community, there's a community being, being built. And there's volunteers um, that come to Mexico and volunteer at an orphanage here in Mexico, here in Tijuana. So Chris said, you know, go to this orphanage when you, when you get deported. And that's what I did. And this orphanage allow, allowed me to, to stay there. I stayed there for about a year. And they, um, there, was, there was other adults there who were like volunteering, like, you know, keeping the, the orphanage going. And that's, that's what we did. We did like construction work, um, building new, like building new buildings, um, um, kitchens and stuff like that for the orphanage. So that that's what it, that's where I spent like my first year after getting deported, and it was very, it was very, very nice because these kids had no boundaries. These kids would run around and laugh and play and 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 do you know like um, they would invade your personal space. So mm-hmm. so coming from a place where protecting your personal space was very, very important. And they broke down that barrier for me. They, they allowed me to, to heal, to, to, to break down, like to, to kind of like open the doors for me to normal life, to like a, a regular society. That's, that's what I felt the kids did there with their playfulness and with their laughter and their smiles. And, and I felt alone as well. I didn't, I didn't have any family. I didn't have my parents here. I didn't have my brothers here. I felt I felt like an orphan as well. So yeah. it was it was a good place for me to go after getting out of prison. Yeah, and you wouldn't think that would be where you'd think to go at age twenty three, like you're saying. But with your friend Chris, you know, giving you an option or a space to be, I mean, that's amazing. I do think that kids are, um, yeah, naturally usually happy. They're resilient, and I can see how that could be you know, something that could break down those walls for you and make you kind of start your healing process. And yeah. And they just kind of don't judge. They just kind of just love you for you. Like (laughs) for sure. Yeah. Yeah, And they, they were very, they embraced me. Like they, they, they allowed me into their life naturally, you know, with no judgment with, you know, with the smile, they actually wrote about that, about how they taught me how to smile and laugh again. So. Oh, Oh, I love that. Yeah. To read that. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So this is even a bigger journey than yes. was in your bio. So yeah. this is just an amazing It really is. Story amazing and journey. Story. And yes. all these little, like these things along the way um, that kind of has helped you get to where you are. It's yeah, just kind of an interesting. And the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the yeah. people. Yeah. So after you left the orphanage, what was your next? Yeah. So I, I moved into a small house. Um, I was working. I started working. Wow. If I, I go back 20 years ago and, and it's like um, I was earning, there was a big impact of like the living um, standards here in Mexico and in the, in the living standards that I lived in the, in, in the United States, even though we were, you know, um, below the poverty line and, and I grew up like very, like we didn't have a lot, it, it was still better than what I was, how I was living here in Mexico. I was earning in my first job, I was earning like 60, no, like $30 a week. And, oh wow! and that was with like bonuses and everything. And, 
and and I and I would talk to people and and I would ask them like how long how long you guys been working here and and they'll say like oh I've been here 15 years or I've been here you know um 20 years and and I couldn't believe it like I couldn't I couldn't accept the fact that I would earn $30 you know, for like yeah, the rest of your 15 life. years, like, wow. I, yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't do it. Like, I, I can't, I can't do it. So I started talking to the engineers. They were like American engineers that, that were like walking around the factory and stuff. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll start talking to them. I'll be like, Hey man, um, is there an opportunity for me like somewhere else where I can earn more money? And every day I would bug them and bug them. And there was this engineer, his name was uh, Robert Guthrie. He told me, he's like, Go to human resources every day and tell them that you're you're better than what you're doing right now and tell them you know how to do this. So <laughs> that's all right. Uh I just I'm just going back. Mm-hmm. I'm just going back and remembering people. Well, it helped me a long way, and yeah. it just makes me emotional. Yeah. He's like, go, go to human resources every day and tell them and bug them every day. He's like, every day, go and tell them you're better. You can do more. So that's what I started to do. I, every day, I would go to human resources and say, hey, is there any openings? Is there any opportunities? I can do more. Every day, I didn't stop for like six months. And, um, and then there was like this opportunity for... Uh, for a receptionist. So usually there's a woman in reception. And um I would say, like, you know, there's a receptionist job, I'll do it. And and they were like, You, you speak English? Yes, I, I'm bilingual. And they and she, you know how to use the fax, you know how to use the computer, you know how to use the phone. And I'm like, Yeah, yeah, I I, I can do it. And that's that's what I did. So that was like my first like promotion, right? They they gave me the job. I didn't know how to use a fax. I didn't know how to use a computer. I didn't know how to do <laughs> like, anything. I'll figure it you know? out. Yeah. yeah. So, so they said, you know, they said, you know, there's this, there was like an intern at the reception, covering reception. She, and they were like, go, go to the intern and, and she's going to test you, right? She's going to evaluate you. So I went there. She's like, you know how to do a fax? And, and I, I was like, yeah, 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 I can do it. And, and then she was like, for reals, tell me, like, you know how to do it? And I'm like, nah, I don't, I don't know how to do it. And she said, all right, look, I'm going to teach, teach you how. And she said, look, this is how you do this, and this is how you do that. This is how you use the commuter. Um, when you answer the phone, this is how you have to answer the phone, et cetera. She, she taught me how to do it, and I was like, all right. And she's like, you got it? And I was like, yeah, I got it. She's like, okay, I'm going to tell them that you passed, and, they, and you got it. And I was like, all right. That's awesome. And, yeah. and I got the job. That was like my first promotion. And it took me from like $30 to like $60 a week. So I was really excited about that. Um, After that, um, oh, and and I have to mention that the schooling that I had in the United States, as far as even, you know, high school, it was not valid here in Mexico. So I was here in this job with no education, according, you know, to the paperwork Mm -hmm. that I had to turn in. So, um, so after that, I, I was there for a while and then um the managers the plant manager's assistant you know resigned and she was going to another job and I remember thinking to myself 
like I can do that job, like I can I can get it done, and um, I I remember thinking it's not fair for other people who are professionals, and it's not fair for other people who have gone to school and you know went to university to like learn this stuff for me to step in and take their opportunities. But this is something that I really need, and I remember talking to myself like that way, and then one day, um the manager called me, his office was behind the reception. And, and I was like, Hey, you know, what's going on? He's like, Hey man, I got this position open. You interested? And, and I said, I said, yeah, I said, yeah, yes. I was like, what what do I have to do? He's like, well, you're going to have to do some reports. You're going to have to, you know, he, he's like telling me everything that I have to do. He's like, you have to do some purchasing. Um, and he's like, but, but I'm, but I'm gonna have people train you, and and I said, all right, yeah, I'm 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 down, yeah, I, I want to do it. So he would send me to, he would send me to the engineering department, and he's like, go go to this engineer and tell him to show you how to run this report. How how are you gonna create this report? I didn't know how to use like um, um Excel or or anything, and and he's like, go and and he's gonna tell you how to, he's gonna show you how to make the report. And how to create graphs, and he's going to train you how to do it. So that that's what I did. And there was these engineers who were very prejudiced and and didn't like me. And there was other engineers that were like, you know, like leave them alone. Like come over here, I'm gonna teach you how to do this. And they taught me how to do formulas and how to create graphs and how to put the reports mm-hmm. together and stuff like that. And then you know, as far as purchasing goes, there was like go to this person, and she's like the purchasing manager. And she's going to teach you how to put in purchasing orders and how to create an invoice and how to do this. And and they started training me. And that kind of took me, it wasn't that much, but it would took me to like $120 a week. And, and I was like growing and opening up these, these, um, these, this new lifestyle for me that I didn't see. I didn't see when I first got here, I was like, wow, I you know, I can't, I can't live this way. And, um, and eventually that's that kind of where I I saw myself like going to the university, going to school and 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 doing things different. I, I I went to I did my elementary, junior high and high school again here in Mexico, and then I went to the university as well. Um wow. and, and it's all because you know of where I started the job and you know, where where I started um in my first job and how it kind of evolved into something better and better and better. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I'm, that's amazing. I'm happy for you. And I, you know, we keep thinking, you know, thinking of all these people that have helped you in your path, but we can't ignore the fact that like you also got you here, you oh, know, totally. Yeah. that you, you know, had this passion for your poetry. And then, you know, you did, you, like you said, like you would kind of do this and then go backwards, but you know, maybe what you said, but at the same time you go back to jail, but you also met those amazing people in jail and got involved with the poetry. And then yes, going backwards, you might say, cause you got deported, but then you get this, you know, you get to go to the orphanage and then you work your way up, you know, working hard and having these, you know, people help you along the way, but it's also a testament to you and you like, okay, I can do this and I, I can learn it. I don't know it, but I can learn it. Okay. Teach it to me. I got this, you know, yeah. wanting to have a better life for yourself. It's Yeah. And I was just thinking, it seems like it was, I don't know if it was conscious or not, but like 
you could have probably easily fallen back into the gang's lifestyle in Mexico once you were deported to Mexico. But it seems like you kind of, you know, maybe it was the orphanage or maybe it, it was the connection with your work. But like, it seems like you, you kind of chose to go a different path. Oh, yeah. Before before getting out of prison, I I I, I decided to myself that I knew I was going to get deported. And, and I decided that if I was getting this opportunity to start over with the blank sheet of paper, that I wasn't going to ruin my life in another country where I can start from fresh, you know, and I kind of came to realization that I really messed up my life in the United States and that I wasn't going to do that here in Mexico. And, and I came out with that mentality. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really awesome. And then during that time, as you're kind of, you know, working your way up in the company, were you still involved with the poetry at all at that time? I was, I was, yes, I was still in contact um, with, um, with the teachers, Deborah Tabola, Elizabeth Buckner, and with Chris Hendrickson. Um, I, I wasn't doing anything as far as teaching goes or anything like that, but I was just, I just had them in my corner. You know, I just had them, like, I would call them, I would be in contact with them. That's cool. And um, Chris, Chris has come to visit me several times and Ms. Tabola and Ms. Buckner also have come to visit me. So it's really, oh, awesome. it's really nice. Wow. Yeah. And were you keeping up writing on your own at this point? I was, I was doing very little writing, but I would write um, periodically during, during this period. Um, I was, I was happy to have a, an ID for the first time in my life, an actual ID, a driver's license um, to have a, a legal job. When I was working, I was very excited to have a job because I didn't have a regular job before, never in my life. So I was really, yeah. really excited. And I think, um, and, and this whole opportunities opened up before me and I was like, well, I, this is what I want to do. I want to become an engineer. I, I want to, you know, um, do, do what I've been doing. I, I was actually in the industrial manufacturing industry for like 17 years. Um, and just recently stopped working at, in, in the industrial manufacturing industry. Hmm, that's awesome. I got I got burned out. I realized it's yeah. not what I wanted to do. Sometimes yeah. it's time for a change. Yeah, that's yeah. a long time, yeah. but that's really cool that you you went in really like well, sort of quote unquote no education. Like you're saying, it didn't really yeah. count when you got there. So you were starting like completely yeah. fresh from yeah. there and then working your way up through Which this. Which is yeah. so commendable that like you decided to redo all that education and then go to college. I mean, that was like quite a goal, but you yeah. did it. That's amazing. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, and, and and I had my experiences in college as well, as well as in the experiences in the industrial manufacturing. There's a lot of prejudice against. There's like Mexican prejudice against Mexicans, and there's this Mexi- There's prejudice against people who grew up in the U.S. and who who now live here in Mexico. There, you're mm-hmm. you just, It's hard to fit in. Not you don't fit in everywhere. Um, yeah, yeah. And you in the university. I would talk, I, I spoke with several of my professors and I would tell them like, look, man, I've never went to school. Like the school that I went to, like didn't teach me all of this. So, so you're like the first person that that's teaching me. Just be a little patient with me. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll figure it out. <laughs> I just, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I would tell my professors, look, just, no, just be patient. Okay. I'll figure it out. Yeah. 
I was like, I'll, I'll figure it out. And, and they didn't, they, they didn't grasp, they didn't understand the idea of that I didn't have typical schooling like everyone else. Like I didn't want to tell them. And I, and I kept it a secret for all these years of me being in prison and me being in jail, me growing up in gangs, no one in my professional surroundings knew about that and, and neither in the university. So I, I couldn't tell them why I didn't have the education that other people had, but I just tell them, look, this, this is the first time that I'm learning this. I've never seen this before. Just let me, let me figure it out. Just be patient and, and I'll get it. And they were very, they were very accepting when I, when I spoke to them, they were very like, okay, then, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you like, you know, you got, you got till so-and-so day to get this going and, you know, you have to get it done. So it was, it was, it was a really good experience. I really enjoyed it. You know, it made me think about how, I mean, your situation is, you know, a, a more extreme version than most any of us will ever have to deal with. But I'm trying to tell my kids that, you know, even as they go through school, like, just put yourself out there and go talk to the teacher, explain where you're coming from. Like if we ever can speak up for ourselves, I, I think that they want to help like teachers, you know, people, they want you to succeed. Work. Yeah. Most, part, most yeah. people I do think that want others to succeed, but sometimes it just takes kind of speaking up for ourselves and, and giving them our perspective a little bit. So uh, yeah, I love that you brought that up. So 17 years later and now you've quit doing that. So what's kind of where are you at now? How are you involved with the poetry? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Update I mean, if you, if we skip some stuff, you can kind of fill that yeah, in, but whatever you'd like to, I know you in. had a few more kids and stuff. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was, I got married. I've got divorced. Like the official divorce was like six months ago or maybe yeah, oh, something like six months ago. I'm still, we're still going to court for like the custody thing, but, um, I was married for 12 years. Um, about my first home, I, you know, like a lot of stuff that, that I didn't see me having or being able to accomplish growing up in the United States and, you know, in the game lifestyle, like I'm starting to accomplish them here in Mexico. Yeah. And it, it really makes me feel really good about that. Um, after my last job, um, I was um, shortly after my last job, COVID started right um covid the pandemic started mm -hmm. and it opened up opportunities for me because everything went virtual right so my my friend chris he's, he's like hey man um where everything's going virtual you can teach with us now and i was like mm -hmm. are you sure he's like yeah and, and he's like oh, cool. and i was like you're offering me a job he's like yeah man i'm gonna I'm hire you you're gonna start teaching and and you know i started training um, with other um, teaching artists and they were like teaching me the ropes and how to do it. And I'm, I'm still learning, you know, it's been about three years and there's still, I'm still learning a lot of stuff, but that's how I started teaching virtually with street poets and, uh, you know, teaching with um, kids in high schools, junior highs, um, some park communities, um, universities, diff different, different groups of people, wherever there's opportunity to do the teaching um, through virtually they, they invite me and, and I'll, and I'll do the teaching. And during, during this time, um, this, this pandemic, Miss Tabola from Arts and Corrections called me and she said, Hey, there's a job opening for a playwright and, you know, a writer, a teaching artist. And, and she's like, I want you to have the job. And, and I said, <laughs> and I said, um, 
like, are you sure? She's like, yes. And she's like, I'm like, but how, how, how is this going to happen? So she, she started investigating like work permits for people who are outside of the U S and work in the U S and she found, she found a solution and she, and I was hired and, and it's been, it's, I've been doing this for a couple of years with, um, William James Association that's in charge of arts and corrections and prisons. And, and I've been teaching, um, from here, um, in, in the same prison where I was in 20 years ago. So that's awesome. Wow. That's really cool. So you run, is it basically just teaching them how to begin poetry if they've like, if they're brand new to it, or, I mean, do you just teach all different kinds of courses with it? Um, yeah. How does that work? So in, in street poets, what we do, we call them workshops, right? So that we have these workshops and what we do is like we will introduce ourselves through poetry and we'll, um, we'll read a few poems to the, to the, to the, to the, to the group that we're, we're teaching at the moment. And then we'll talk about and conversate about the program, about the, the poetry, the poems that were read. And then, you know, we'll, we'll hear the comments and then um, some of the kids will, you know, write poetry or um, speak up, speak up on parts of the poem that they can relate to and stuff like that. Then we'll invite them to write their own poetry. We give them starter lines and we'll say, hey, so these are the starter lines. Um, you guys can put something down. And a lot of the kids will be like, oh, I'm not a poet. I don't know how to write a poem. I've never written a poem. Well, then just write down a list of things or write down your thoughts or write down whatever comes to you, you know, and, um, and that's what we do. They're like hour long workshops and, you know, we do that. That's, awesome. that's really cool. Yeah. And I'm sure like anything else, like for some people, it might just be something they try and, but other people it probably really, they just love it and they want to continue it. And I think for that population, especially like, you know, in, um, like, I mean, those people probably like, like you, like going back to how you were like a way to express yourself when a lot of those people have never had a chance to like poetry seems like a really good bridge for that. And probably kind of like a safe space to begin that. Cause it's not like they're going to just pouring out all of their emotions and feelings. Right. It's a way you can do it through words that don't have to be, you know, it's not like they're going so and giving their life story. Yeah. yeah. A- but ways to begin that. And it seems like it could be so healing. So I think that's just amazing. It's kind of like you're a poetry teacher, but you're also their therapist and their life coach and all those right. things probably wrapped yeah. up into yeah, that. Like a mentor. And yeah. All a mentor. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and for, and for the William James association that those with arts and corrections, I work, um, I, I create like lesson plans through, you know, a document and then I email it to my co-teaching artist who is there physically, who would go mm-hmm. to the prison physically and then she'll give out the lesson plan and talk about the lesson plan. And then um, the the program that we're doing that, that I'm working in right now, it's we create poetry. We have, we have the man at the prison create poetry and then we put it together and piece it together and we create a play. And then we, then they perform the play at the prison. Um, we get a lot of attention from radio and media and stuff like that. So that's really oh. exciting. And, yeah, um, that's great. and there's a lot of breakthroughs with, with the men as well, as well as with, as, as with the youth, but with the men, it, it amazes me because these are grown men. Some are, you know, over 45, 50, and they have not had the opportunity to be vulnerable. 
the way that I had the opportunity as a child or as a kid. And they're being vulnerable now as grown men sometimes. And there's this recent poem that was sent in from a, a grown man. And, you know, he's always come off really, really cold and hard in his poetry. Um, like if he was like, you know, like boasting about who he was or what he, who he is and, you know, things like very protective shield and, you know, and then there was this one piece in this poem in the middle of the poem where he says, my mom is on her deathbed. And then he goes back into being really protective again. And to me, like that was almost written in cold, right? It was almost written like a hidden, like a, like the small writing in, in, in a contract. It was like shining light on that little piece of, of, I don't know, of love or of pain or whatever it was. And these opportunities are not given to, to men and, and youth who are growing up in these streets and who are involved in the system. So to me, that's a, like, that's what makes it um, meaningful for me because he, he had that opportunity now as a grown man. I'm not sure what his sentence is. I'm not sure if he's ever getting out of prison or not, but just the the fact that he found a way to express that, it, it like impulses me to keep doing it because I know I know that's like the, a, a little crack of that's going to let light shine in to wherever um, he's hiding all the pain. So that's really that's really good for me. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I think that's what's yeah so cool about writing. Like all kinds of writings is being able to, something you can't articulate and say can come out in big or small ways in writing and can be super powerful and healing. So yeah, yeah, and that's probably so um, satisfying or, or like rewarding for you to see that that because you can relate to that, but you can see how how it's making a difference what you're doing. That's really neat. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about your poetry. Would you be willing to read something to us? Yeah. Sure. Um, If you want to read something more recent or more um, from before, just whatever you'd like to share. So I read, I read, I I wrote this poem not too long ago, maybe about two years ago. And um, it's one of the, one of the hardest poems that I wrote and I shared with the youth and I told him it was really, really difficult for me to read it because I'm ashamed about, I'm ashamed of some of the stuff that I've done. So this is the poem. It's called Elote Man. Elote Man is, uh, is the man who sells corn cobs on the street out of a push, like a, a market car. I'm okay. not sure if they have that over in Utah, but they're very frequent in Los Angeles. Okay. So this is the poem. My three brothers, mother and I, walked the streets of South L.A., pushed a shopping cart full of corn cobs, yelling, elotes, elotes, trying to get people to buy, to keep the sky from falling on our family, to make ends meet, a dent in our debt, one corn cob at a time. I remember it was my mom's last $20. She had to find a way to flip it to buy food for us all. We sold out that day, celebrating what we ate. I sold out another way. Robbing a lot of man after a lot of man on my block and beyond. They saw me coming. They hid their money. Have you ever seen a grown man cry? When I got to him, he'd already been taxed and was empty handed. 
afraid for his life or the lives of the kids he'd failed to feed or the life of the wife he might not see because of me, paperless like him, feeling superior to my own kin because I spoke English because my skin was whiter, my pronunciation brighter, and that somehow gave me the right. I didn't understand. We both came from the same land, the same earth. But the universe, the gods, call it what you will, blessed me with the circumstance with the circumstance to see, deported me 17 years ago. And sometimes I still can't accept Mexico is my home. But my thoughts are now brown and green like nopales. I stick my fingers in the dirt and pull up potatoes and carrots. I pick broccoli, plant kernels of the same corn I sowed years ago as a child, working under the same sun on my own piece of land. I sweat the tears of many men, struggle with the same fears. I am up before the sun rises and well after it sets, arms stretched out to receive its blessing, head held high because we are proud to be who we are. My people are noble. My people forgive. They embrace me. They welcome me home. Oh, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's powerful. All of full circle. Yes, you know, yeah. a good um, summary of your kind of where you are yeah. super beautiful yeah I'm excited to it. read some more of your poems and, and your writings yes yeah that's so neat well I think um yeah just your story I feel kind of blown away that we got to hear it and just so grateful that you would share and come on and be vulnerable with us and and share and I just feel like it's a unique story like like we said I mean I'm sure for us and for our listeners even like we got kind of a glimpse into probably a life that we aren't, we, we're not so familiar with. So right. I'm just really grateful. It's how, I don't know. I've just have I know, a lot I to felt, think about. I know I was going to say, I've have felt so many emotions as you've been talking and so many, so much um, inspiration to want to like help more, to mm-hmm. give more, to be more understanding of people and their stories. And I, you know, we always talk about the reason why we did this podcast is to have people give a chance to tell their story because once you've heard someone's story, it's hard not to love them. It's not, it's hard not to care about them. If you judge from just the outside, you know, and just like a quick story, you can't know we don't, you know, we didn't know your full story. We didn't know all that was behind it and all that you've been through. And it just makes the vulnerabilities, building the connection and sharing your story, I think can, you know, change a lot of people or help a lot of people and maybe give them an inspiration of how they can help um, others just like you were able to, you were helped from so many others and now you're doing the same and it's yeah. just, it's beautiful. Yep. Yeah. And just your example you. too, your example of really, um, yeah, just kind of like one foot in front of the other, like next step, you know, always, I think, like you said, I mean, the circumstance you were born into, like, I mean, you even said the choices that you felt, you know, ashamed of, but I, from my perspective, I'm thinking, but like what, I mean, you didn't have many choices, you know, I, I just am amazed that you are where you are and yeah, just an incredible story all around and you and the other people that are part of it, your, your mentors and everything. So I don't know, it gave me a lot of things to think about. I know. And one, it was interesting too, because I mean, the part of you being, you know, raised in America, but not being American and feeling not in your space and then getting to Mexico and being like, well, I am Mexican, but I grew up, you know, that's another, a whole different part of your story about, I think, and I guess it can connect to the gangs as well. Like we all just want to feel like a part of something. We all want to feel accepted. There's these different paths in your lives that made you feel not connected or feel accepted. And then 
but then you have been in so many ways and now you're, I don't know. It's so, yeah, it's such yeah. a neat story. And it's neat that you found places to be a part of a community like this. And obviously like you were a good friend to those people in return. I mean, these people wanted to help you, but obviously for a reason, I mean, you were a hard worker, you were you talented. Know, with you. Yeah. And probably just a good friend when it comes down to, it. I feel like people want to help people when when they treat them, there's like this mutual respect, you know? So that's another thing that stands out to me is like, you had all those contacts for a reason. And I think it's just a testament to what an amazing person yeah, you are. Especially cause you still have those friendships today. So it's been yeah. this long lasting friendship. Yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you for your words. It, it means a lot. And I'm really happy and grateful that you guys um, were interested in my story. Um, looking forward to, to seeing um, or to hearing the podcast as well. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think we should mention maybe a little bit more, you know, I'm, I've been like so immersed in your story and listening. I have to remember, oh yeah, we have listeners that are listening. Right yeah. <laughs> so let's um, maybe think about any listeners that would want to get involved with Street Poets or just find out more about what it is and like um, how to follow you yeah. and read your poetry you and, and, we... and Street Poets. Yeah. So can you share... Um, I know we communicated over Instagram and I can link to your page, but I can link to street poets as well. Like how else would you suggest people maybe learn more about what you're doing? Yeah. Um, street poets has a, a, a webpage is um, streetpoetsinc.com, And, you know, I think it's .com. Yeah. And they can, they can go to street poets Inc. And um, there's also a podcast for street poets, street poets podcast, street oh, poets Inc. podcast. And, um, and for myself, I have, I'm not, I'm new to this media stuff, so I don't have a lot of posts on, on my feed and Instagram, but I am looking like, I'm I'm trying to build it. I I want to, I want to build, um, my Instagram page and and kind of, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how, how to make it how to make a living off of media because this is where I guess the future is going and people are mm-hmm. learning, you know, how to, how to do that. So I, I, I'm trying to learn that. So if yeah. you guys would help me with my Instagram and I don't even know what it is. In a second here. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, but we can link to your Instagram, which I have okay. that. So anyone listening, we will um, link to Jorge's Instagram on our post here in the podcast notes, but as well as our posts on our Instagram page. And then we'll link to street poets and, um, we'll include, yeah, just then they can message you, get in touch with you that way, follow you. Yeah. If you want to follow Jorge, um, looks like he is going to be building up his page and sharing more poetry and things like that. So I feel like you'd be a great person to support. If you, um, have anything else you'd want to share with us, um, before we wrap up, we have a kind of a wrap up question that we always ask at the end, but if you have anything else yeah, do you have any that? other thoughts or should we move to that? Um, I, I don't have any thoughts. Just, I'm just really grateful for you. Thank you for taking interest in me. And, um, I, I already started hearing some of the stories that you, your podcast stories, and that's, I think you guys are doing a great job. And I think, um, giving voice to very, um, to people who need to be heard and that, you know, they're relatable to, to the rest of the community who are not able to to, to speak on their own or that feel maybe alone. So that that's yeah. really, really important. It's, um, I think what you guys are doing is really great. Oh, Thank thanks. You. Thanks so much. Well, we are obviously just so impressed with you and so grateful that you were took the time with us. So thank you so much. Yeah. So at the end, we always ask, how do you find beauty in life after you've gone through these transitions? 
Oh, <laughs> I, I, I actually practice that every day and every day of my life. Um, I'm always trying to find the beauty and the chaos. Um, try to be grateful for the little things. Like sometimes I have these real life problems, right? Like um, not, not problems from people in prison or people involving gangs, but I have like bills and mortgages and stuff like that. I'm so stressed out and I'm driving down the, the street or, you know, on, on the freeway. And then I remember and I tell myself, look at where you are. You have these problems or you have this stress because you are out here, because you are free, because you are accomplishing. And it helps me ground myself and say like, all right, you know, like, yes, you know, not everyone has these opportunities. So um, I am grateful and I find beauty. I find beauty in that. And I try to do that every day. Um, every day that I can, that I can, I, 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 I look for the beauty and for the little things to be grateful for. Mm. I love that. Yeah, that's perfect. Awesome. Well, this has been amazing. And like Lindsay said, I feel like I have a lot to like kind of think about and I'm kind of excited to re-listen because I, you know, go through and kind of edit and re-listen and I'm excited to, I don't know, it's just, like you said, we didn't really know what to expect. Like, obviously we thought your story sounded amazing and we wanted to hear your story, but it's even, just, it was more powerful than I even thought going yeah, into this. And totally. I'm, I'm just so grateful that, yeah, that you just took a chance on us and <laughs> responded to my random message request. But I feel like it's a perspective that's unique and that us and our listeners are going to benefit greatly from yeah, hearing learn like, a lot. learning. Yeah. About a different, you know, like, culture that we're, we're not as familiar with. And then also just the poetry aspect and there's just so much value there. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and would love if you subscribe to the podcast and followed along as we continue hearing more inspiring stories. You can also follow us on Instagram at beautiful shifts podcast, where we will post updates with our latest interviews. We'd like to thank the band We The Lion for giving us permission to use their beautiful song Move Along for our podcast. Take a minute to listen to the song and the lyrics and enjoy. I find a way to know myself All my thoughts are mine again And begin to understand where to go now it's time to move along Now it's time to move along Take this journey as my own Feel the strength right in my bones All I want is to believe Life is my own Life Start again, the mind is free now I can feel the truth in me I'll take a chance, I won't be wrong Here's Now it's time to move along Now it's time to move along Take this journey